Uh, a significant number of the Psalms in the book of Psalms are songs of lament, both individual and communal laments. Uh, to lament is to express deep grief and sorrow in the face of living in a sin-broken world. And Psalms of lament help us to lament our own sin, uh, and they also help us to lament in the face of just living with the sin of others as well, and living in a sin-broken world. We're told that uh, this psalm was written by He-Man, uh, not of Grayskull, but a descendant of Korah from the Levites, and a number of the psalms were written by the sons or descendants of Korah. And during David's reign, He-Man, along with the other sons of Korah, like Asaph and Ethan, became important leaders, song leaders, in the tabernacle worship. Uh, the term Mahaloth Leonoth most likely is some sort of stringed instrument, and the terms Maskel and Selah are most likely musical terms. Before we begin and have a look at Psalm 88, let's pray. Gracious Father God, we thank you that you have given us psalms as words not just from you to us, but also words from us to you. Help us now, help us uh, to understand what you're saying to us in Psalm 88. Help me to speak it faithfully and clearly. Um, help me to be faithful to your scriptures and help us to lament in a way which would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, most Hollywood movies have a three-act uh, structure. In Act 1, the setup. In Act 2, the confrontation or the conflict. And in Act 3, you get the resolution. And we find these movies satisfying because often there's a feel-good Hollywood happy ending. Take, for example, The Lion King. Okay, spoiler alert, but you've had 30 years, okay, to watch it, okay? Act 1, the setup. Simba's father, the, the king of the lions, is killed by his uncle Scar, but Simba is manipulated by his uncle to think that Simba killed his father. Act 2, the confrontation, the conflict. Simba exiles himself from the land of the lions, and for years he goes on to live his Akuna Matata life until he's told that the lion kingdom is in a terrible state under his uncle. And in Act 3, we see the resolution. Simba confronts his uncle and his inner demons to take his rightful place as the new king. And that's satisfying. That's the end that we want. But what happens when the story finishes in Act 2? Uh, take, for example, The Empire Strikes Back in the Star Wars anthology. Again, spoiler alert, but you've had even more time okay, to watch this one. Uh, by the end of the movie... The good guys, they're bruised, they're battered, they've been captured, they're beating a retreat, and the arch-villain, Darth Vader, spoiler alert, turns out to be the hero's father. The movie finishes, as it were, in Act 2. It's the darkest of the Star Wars movies, and for many die-hard Star Wars fans, it is their favourite. Why? Because often that's what real life is like. It's dark, it's gritty, it's not feel-good. And sometimes you're left with more questions than answers. Psalm 88 is just like this. Now, Psalm 88 finishes in Act 2. It's the darkest of the Psalms, the Psalms of lament, even though they might begin with this honest 
cry and outpouring and wrestling with God, they usually finish with a resolution, a renewed trust in God, a renewed commitment to keep praising God in the face of grief and suffering. But listen to how Psalm 88 finishes in verse 18. As the psalmist says of God, you have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. Why are we studying it? What value is this psalm to us then? Why? Because Psalm 88 reflects real life. Walter Brueggemann, one of the commentators on the book of the Psalms, says this, Psalm 88 stands as a mark of realism of biblical faith. It has a pastoral use because there are situations in which easy, cheap talk of resolution must be avoided. Okay? Have you heard people say, just be positive? It's not good enough, is it? Not good enough. As we look at Psalm 88 today, we'll be looking at three things. God invites our honest cries, God is sovereign in our suffering, and God is present in our darkness. Well, firstly, God invites our honest cries. Verse 1, Lord God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. A bit further in verse 9, my eyes are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. And down in verse 13, but I call to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. It's clear right throughout this song that the author of this psalm is suffering. In spite, though, of the despair and the distress he's experiencing, he continues to engage God with desperate, honest cries. Now, what exactly is the psalmist's suffering? We're not told here, but here are some of the effects of his suffering. In verse 8 and 18, he's isolated. As friends, neighbors, and loved ones are distanced from him, they find him repulsive, we're told, in verse 8. He has been suffering for a long time since his youth, verse 15. And although he mentions God's anger or God's wrath twice in the passage, There's no indication that he is suffering because he's done something wrong. Well, how is the psalmist feeling? He feels like the living dead. In verse 3, For I've had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. In the Old Testament, Sheol is regarded as the place of the dead. Verse 4, I'm counted among those going down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I'm like the slain lying in the grave whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. Death was and still is a terrible state. Death is to be cut off from every good gift of God. And for the psalmist, he feels like his life is not much better than death warmed up. He feels completely overwhelmed by grief and despair that he feels as good as dead. Can you relate to this? Can you think of a time in your life when you felt as good as dead, as though every ounce of oxygen was sucked out of you? Here is a list I compiled of when you might feel like this. And these are things that I either have personally encountered in my ministry as a pastor or they have happened to me or people close to me. The death of a spouse, a child, 
a sibling or a parent, sometimes very unexpected. The struggle with various forms of addiction, gambling, alcohol, drug, porn, exercise, food. The struggle of childlessness, the grief of miscarriage and stillbirth, the shock of an unplanned and unwanted pregnancy, the shame of an abortion, the unfulfilled desire to get married, crippling loneliness as a single or married person, lifetime savings decimated by a global financial crisis, the embarrassment of a failed engagement, the ongoing costly impact of divorce, the daily dread of dealing with a controlling and abusive partner, the bewilderment of the moral failure of a pastor or leader that you respected, the disappointment of business failure, the uncertainty of years of unresolved visa status, the toll of chronic mental and physical health problems, the ongoing weariness of degenerative disease, the guilt of unemployment, the helplessness when a child pushes you away, the agony of chronic pain, the fatigue of being a carer for others with illness or disability, the confusion of being scammed, the broken trust from sexual immorality inside and outside marriage, the fog of burnout, the grief of being persecuted for your faith, the sadness of seeing a loved one walk away from God, the complexity of an eating disorder, the hurt of being cut off from your family, the scars of childhood trauma, the heartache of unresolved conflict and broken relationship, the burden of financial debt, the pain of racism or being bullied, the shock of being diagnosed with a terminal disease, the devastation of bushfire or flood, a global pandemic and everything that comes with it. So much suffering, so much grief. I'm sorry if I left your suffering off this list, okay? was not intentional. But can you relate to the psalmist when he says, my eyes are worn out from crying. I've, I've had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. I wanted to share that list for two reasons. And the first is that everyone suffers. Everyone grieves. And if you haven't yet, it's just a matter of time. And when you suffer, you will think that you are completely alone, completely unique, and that no one could understand how you feel. And that's what I've thought each time I've suffered one or more of those experiences on that list. And here's the second reason why I've shared that with you. Peter Adam, a respected Melbourne pastor, preacher, my former Bible college principal said this in an interview about living for many years with his depression. He said the unmitigated gloom of Psalm 88 meant that someone else had these feelings too. So I was not alone and God recognized that people felt like that sometimes. And that was wonderful. I used to say the Psalm again and again. When you feel alone in your grief, Read Psalm 88 again and again. 
because there was someone who felt like you do. What do you do with your grief and the grief of others? Do you cry out to God like the psalmist? Because God recognizes your suffering and your grief. He welcomes your honest cries. That is why Psalms of Lament are in the Bible. That's why Psalm 88 is in the Bible. How long, Lord? Why, Lord? Sometimes life sucks, and God wants you to cry out to him. And often we'll do everything else but, won't we? Self-reliance, distraction, self-medication. We'll blame, we'll avoid, we'll pretend. Churches every Sunday are full of people pretending. How are you going? I'm fine. But we don't need to pretend, do we? I once attended the funeral of a young person who died unexpectedly. It was quite a shock. The young person was a follower of Christ. And at the funeral, from the very outset, the pastor and the family spoke of victory, of heaven, of celebration, almost as if they were rushing their loved one to heaven. It felt like they were forcing Act 3 to happen because they didn't want to sit in the grief of Act 2. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is ministering to Mary upon the death of her brother Lazarus, Jesus saw her weeping and those that came with her weeping. And what did Jesus do? He wept. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled, it says in the text. Jesus wept. He grieved with those who grieve. So here's what I want you to do. When someone asks you after church, how are you going? If life sucks, I give you permission to say this. To be honest, I feel like the living dead. Now, if you're the person that they're talking to, here's what I want you to say. Would you like to share what you mean by that? And when they share, I want you to listen. No, no, I mean really listen. Don't interrupt them. Don't say, I know exactly how you feel because you're not them. And after they finish sharing, I want you to ask this. Have you had an opportunity to talk about this with God? And chances are they haven't for many reasons. And then when they say that, say this, can I pray about this right now with you? And 99% of the time, they will say yes. And then pray something like this. Dear Father God, things sound so hard right now for my friend, my brother, my sister. I'm not sure exactly what to pray, but I know you know and love my friend better than anyone else. And I just want to cry out to you for help. Please help her. Please help him. Amen. Look, it's okay to bring a grieving person to one of the pastors, but you know what I just shared with you is exactly what I would do as a pastor, and you can try and do that too. 
God invites our honest cries. And here's the second point. God is sovereign in our suffering. Psalm 88 is a prayer of deep faith because the psalmist has a deep view of God. He's wrestling with God's character. Look at verse 1 and see how he refers to God. Lord God of my salvation. In the midst of his grief, the psalmist is still clinging to the promise of a God who delivers He's the God who saves his people. He's the God who keeps his promises to them. That's why he can still cry out to God with this glimmer of hope. But at the same time, the psalmist is also grappling with God's part in his suffering. Verse 6, you have put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves, Selah. You have distanced my friends from me. You have made me repulsive to them. I'm shut in and cannot go out. In some way, he holds God responsible for his suffering, and he brings this accusation before God in verse 14. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? Verse 16, your wrath sweeps over me, your terrors destroy me. Verse 18, you have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. The psalmist is wrestling with God's sovereignty and his character. If God is in control of everything and if God is good, then why does he allow me to suffer like this? The psalmist's experience runs right up against what he knows of God. I've been trying to live a godly life in communion with God. Then why does God bring this kind of suffering upon me? Why does he treat me like like I was the wicked? In the book of Job, we see this same struggle. Job is described as a man of integrity who feared God and, and turned away from evil. And yet God allows Satan to bring terrible suffering into Job's life. He loses his children. He loses his livelihood and possessions. He's inflicted with a terrible disease. And his wife and his three friends give him terrible advice. And throughout the book, Job wrestles with his friends and with God about why God has brought such suffering into his life. And by the end of the book, God actually says that Job spoke the truth about God, even though he didn't get everything right about God. You see, Job actually needed to learn an important lesson. God is God and we are not. Job 42 verse 1, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I'd heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them. I'm dust and ashes. God is sovereign. In our suffering, he has good plans and purposes, and often we don't understand them at the time, and sometimes we will, but only much later. When Joseph went through episode after episode of suffering, God had a purpose to make him ruler over Egypt in order to save the nations from famine. When God raised Babylon and Assyria to inflict suffering on his own people, God had a purpose to punish and refine his people. 
And when God poured his wrath on his suffering servant son Jesus on the cross, God had a purpose to rescue a world full of rebels. As you keep wrestling with God in your grief and your suffering, will you be like the psalmist and like Job? Will you be open to having your view of God changed and deepened? Do you believe that when you suffer through Act 2, God could make your view of him deeper and richer and better than if you hadn't gone through Act 2? Some of our brothers and sisters here at this church who have suffered greatly can say amen to that. God is sovereign. Even in our suffering, these griefs are not outside his control and he can use them for your good to make you more like his son Jesus and to make you cherish his son Jesus. Our author and Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie had three children and two of her children, Hope and Gabriel, both died at six months old after being born with a rare genetic condition. And God has used Nancy and her husband David's suffering to help many people. In her book, Holding On to Hope, Nancy writes, Early on in my journey, I said to God, Okay, if I have to go through this, then give me everything. Teach me everything you want to teach me through this. Don't let this incredible pain be wasted in my life. I know God has a purpose for allowing this pain into my life and that it is for my ultimate good so I can actually embrace my pain. Would you believe I can thank God for this bitter but rich experience? I can because I know God is good, that he allows good and bad into our lives and that we can trust him with both. Sovereign God can use Act 2 in your life too. And finally, God is present in the darkness In verse 10, the psalmist says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon, like Sheol, is a term for the place of the dead. Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? Sometimes when you suffer, you are left with more questions than answers. And that is how the psalmist finishes. God, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to keep your promises to your people? Will my death be the final word? Or are you going to do something about it? Am I going to remain alone in my lonely grief until I die? Where is God in the darkness? On the worst And the best day in history, darkness fell on the land on a lonely cross in Jerusalem. And the Son of God, who was also God the Son, was nailed to that cross, abandoned and betrayed in excruciating pain. He cried an honest cry to his Father God, a lament from the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In the darkness, Jesus carried all our sin upon himself. In the darkness, Jesus suffered God's wrath and broke the power of sin. In the darkness, Jesus' death crushed 
our death. And his final words on the cross before he died, Jesus said, it is finished. The power of sin is finished. The curse of death is finished because darkness gives way to light. The death and resurrection of Jesus is act three. And that is God's resolution. So that when you face the grief of suffering in your act two, when you sit in the darkness, you can know that today is not always. You can know that you are not alone. You can know that God is present with you. And one day, because of the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, he will bring you into the glorious light of his throne in heaven, where he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Uh, The clip that I showed you at the start was of a young woman called Jane Marchewski, performing under the stage name Nightbird. And last year in June on America's Got Talent, she performed a song she wrote called It's Okay, and she received a golden buzzer from Simon Cowell, meaning she went straight to the finals. And this came after four years of battling with breast cancer, twice being declared cancer-free, and the breakdown of her marriage in 2020 And after she went through all this, there was no Hollywood ending because by August, Jane was too unwell to perform in the finals. And then in February this year, Jane Nightbird Marchewski died at the age of 31. It turns out, though, that Jane was a follower of Jesus from a family of followers of Jesus One of her final blog posts was entitled, God is on the bathroom floor. Jane writes, I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I'm the one whose belly is filled with the loaves of mercy that were hidden from for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go and lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there, even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. If you can't see him look lower, God is on the bathroom floor. That's act two. 
at Jane's uh, memorial service in March this year, which you can see on YouTube, Jane's sister, Caitlin, also a gifted singer-songwriter, performed an original song she wrote for her sister. Here are some of the lyrics. Each morning, we're given a chance to say thank you, Jesus, for giving this day. Life is a gift that we're thankful for. We'll take miracles as they come. Stand in the darkness with hope and joy in the morning that comes. Someday our tears will all pass away. Pain will be something that's lost. The strength that we find to walk each day is found at the foot of the cross. Sing hallelujah, hallelujah to the king. He has given us every good thing. And that's act three. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that Psalm 88 is in the Bible. That someone did feel like we do. And that we can cry out to you in lonely grief in the darkness. Gracious Father, we don't want act two often, but we know that you are sovereign, that you can use act two for your good and perfect purposes in our lives. And we thank you that you have already shown us act three, that Jesus cries out in the darkness and that he crushes sin and death, that when act three comes in its fullness, we can be your people and you will be our God, and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And for this we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.